You know, many businesses today or organizations have mission statements. You've probably seen several mission statements. A mission statement is sort of a short, pithy saying that defines what an organization is called to do. In fact, some people don't like mission statements. One person was criticizing them and said it's a long, awkward sentence that demonstrates management's inability to think clearly. There are some mission statements of famous organizations. How about Google? Their mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. How about Nike? To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And then they said this, which is kind of uh, interesting to me. If you have a body, you are an athlete. I said, huh? I've seen some people's body. They definitely are not athletes. Or how about Disney World? We create happiness by providing the finest in entertainment for people of all ages everywhere. Or how about McAllister Sandwich Shop? This is local. They have a real succinct, concise mission statement to please you, the guest. And then there's Moe's Southwestern Grill. How many have ever eaten at Moe's Southwestern Grill? Here's their mission statement, to provide a one-of-a-kind experience that energizes everyone with an enthusiastic welcome, exceptional service, awesome food, killer tunes, and an unforgettable time. Listen, every time I eat there, I have an unforgettable time with Montezuma's Revenge. So, <laughs> And then there's some funny mission statements to look as busy as possible regardless of how much you accomplish. How about to make it to the weekend? Imagine that mission statement. Or how about this one? To get enough dorks to buy our stupid products so that we can afford to dress as cool as we know we are. And then finally, there's one that says... Our mission is to have enough employees that we are, we at the top levels never have to do any real work. Now, we could go on and on and on with businesses that have mission statements, but the question that naturally arises is this, what is the mission of the church? Did Jesus give us some last marching orders before he left? And the answer is yes, the mission of the church is stated very simply, it is to make disciples. The church does not invent the mission. Jesus gave us the mission. The question is, are we fulfilling that mission? So every church may be different in its style of worship. Every church may have nuances of difference in their doctrine. But the fact of the matter is, the church has the same mission, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To see this, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, John's been going through 1 Corinthians and um, I was going to pick up chapter 5, but I asked him if I could preach on the Great Commission because I wanted to lay the foundation for what we're going to be doing in the months and years to come here as we reach out to our community. Matthew chapter eight, uh, 28, verses 16 through 20, this is typically known as the Great Commission passage. You can see it in all four of the Gospels. It's stated a little bit differently, but all four Gospels have the Great Commission. In fact, some people don't like to call it the Great Commission. They like to call it the Great omission, because many churches today are not fulfilling the Great Commission. What a lot of churches in America are are country clubs with the cross. They're not really fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, this is post-resurrection. Let me give you the context as I read it here. It says in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus was given authority. He has inherent authority. And based on that authority, he says, therefore, verse 19, go, and here it is, make disciples of all nations. There's the mission of the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. Now, remember, this is post-resurrection. Jesus called a mandatory meeting at a mountain near Galilee. We don't know exactly where it was. It may have been the Mount of Olives. And Jesus calls there a mandatory meeting. He had many meetings, but this was a mandatory meeting because he was getting ready to ascend. And he basically here is going to give the last marching orders to the church. About 500 people showed up at this meeting. It was a pretty large meeting. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was kind of like a church service. The worship was going. People were worshiping. Some doubted because they didn't know if Jesus really had arose from the dead. And Jesus gets up to give the sermon. He clears his voice. And here's what Jesus says. Before I leave, 
Here is the mission of the church. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, here is the final message I'm going to give you before I send back to the Father. I want you to make disciples of all nations. You see, that's the mission of the church. Now listen, a church's success is not measured by budget buildings, baptisms, or nickels and noses. That's not the success of the church. There's nothing wrong with nickels and noses, budgets and baptisms. All those are necessary in a church, but that's not the benchmark by which we measure the success of a church. Ultimately, the success of a church is determined by whether or not it's making disciples. Now, when Jesus said make disciples, notice he didn't say make fans. He didn't say make fans. You say, what's a fan? Well, years ago, Someone gave me tickets in 1988. I was in South Florida at the time, and I went to go see the Miami Hurricanes play the Oklahoma Sooners for the national title. That's when Miami was really good at that time, like Clemson. And uh, I went to the game, and there was probably 78,000 fans there plus. And I noticed that all of them were cheering. They were fans for either team. And 22 players down on the field were doing all the work. And you see, what the church is doing is it's producing fans today. They're fans for Jesus Christ. They cheer, they get excited, but they're really not following. And really, a lot of churches, most people do all the work, while the rest of the people are fans, and very few do all the work. You see, Jesus didn't say we're to make fans. He said we're to make disciples. Furthermore, Jesus didn't say we're to make timeshare Christians. You say, what's a timeshare Christian? Well, you've been to a timeshare before. You've probably endured the spiel in order to get the benefits. Years ago, when I was in South Florida, my buddy called me. His name was Frank. He said, hey, Nimmer, I'm going to uh, Miami Beach with my wife. Do you and Laura want to come? And do you want to be a part of this timeshare? I said, what's the incentive? What's in it for me? He said, well, here's what they're going to do. Here's what they're going to give you for free. I said, well, I like free things, so I'm in. I'm willing to endure the timeshare. This thing lasted, I regretted that I went, this thing was like three hours because the guy that was dealing with us, he was such a terrible salesman, he couldn't close an umbrella. That's how bad he was. (laughs) And so I endured the whole timeshare, and finally I got the benefits at the end. You know what a timeshare Christian is? A timeshare Christian is someone who wants all the benefits of Christianity, but they don't want to commit to buying. And Jesus said, we're not to be timeshare Christians. Jesus didn't say to make fans. Jesus said we are to make disciples. Now, the question is, what is a disciple? Well, the word mathetes in the Greek literally means a learner. Back in that day, discipleship was popular. Jesus wasn't the one who invented it. He had the 12 disciples who followed him and learned from him. But discipleship goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Moses had disciples. Elijah had disciples. If you read John chapter 1, John the Baptist had disciples. A disciple in that day was a learner, a pupil, or an apprentice. And what they would do is they would follow the philosopher or the rabbi. They would learn from them. They would be devoted to them. And they would take their teachings and they would put them into practice. That was the key. It wasn't just learning, it was actually emulating and practicing what the rabbi or the philosopher taught. A great example of this discipleship idea of learning is a modern contemporary example of Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. Now, you'll see their pictures up on the screen. As you know, Nick Saban is the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, and people are getting tired of seeing him go to all these national championships just like New England. Well, what people don't know is Kirby Smart, whom he played for the national title, Kirby Smart is the head coach of Georgia, but what a lot of people don't know is Kirby Smart was a disciple of Nick Saban. Kirby Smart actually was his defensive coordinator for years. He learned under Nick Saban. He was taught by Nick Saban, and so when he got the job at Georgia, what he did was he left and he reproduced what he was taught, and when I read the article, it said this, Saban versus Saban. That was the title of the article because they realized that Kirby Smart was a disciple of Nick Saban and he was going to reproduce what he had been taught. That's exactly what the Bible says you and I are to be. We are to be followers of Jesus Christ. We're not to be fans. We're not to be timeshare Christians who get all the benefits of Christianity, but we really don't want to follow Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a disciple, what are the characteristics of a disciple? Because Jesus said we're to make disciples What are the characteristics of a disciple? Well, I like to use the acrostic silo, S-I-L-O. If you go to Pennsylvania and you drive through the country part, you'll see all these silos where they put grain. I think silo represents 
What are the characteristics of a disciple? S stands for what? Self-denial. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a disciple, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow me. See, crucifixion was common in that day. People would walk down the Roman roads, and they would see people crucified for crimes all the time. And so Jesus borrows from that, and he says, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be my follower, you have to be willing to die to your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your agenda, and you must lay them down, and you must be willing to follow me, even if it leads to death. You see, self-denial. Peter experienced this. Remember Jesus told him in John chapter 21 he was going to die? And remember he said to Jesus, well, what about John? And Jesus said to put it in the vernacular, none of your business, Peter, you follow me. Well, tradition says that in the 60s, Jesus died in the 30s. In the 60s, Nero, who was a Roman emperor, launched an all-out attack against Christians, persecution. And Peter's friends, he was in Rome at the time, they urged him to get out of Rome because he was going to be one of the victims. Initially, he was reticent. He didn't want to go. But finally, he agreed to go. And tradition says as he was leaving the city, he had a vision of Jesus, and he fell to his knees. And in the vision, he asked Jesus, where are you going? And he says, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified a second time. And Peter realized what Jesus was saying to him. And in the vision, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, follow me. And so Peter went back in the city, and tradition says that they crucified him, but Peter made a specific request. He said, crucify me upside down because I don't want to die like my Lord, and that's exactly how Peter died. You see, discipleship involves self-denial, but secondly, in the siloacrostic, it involves imitation. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, a student is not above his teacher. See the discipleship mentor relationship there? He says a student is not above his teacher, but when he's fully trained, he will become like his teacher. He will become like his teacher. You see, imitation. People that are disciples of Jesus Christ, they're going to imitate the Lord. They're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We all can point to things in our life where we're sorely lacking in our character. But you know what? God has got us in process as we imitate our Lord. We mimic Him in what we say and what we do. You know, having kids is an adventure. On the one hand, you see a lot of good traits that you pass down to your children. On the other hand, you see a lot of your sins on two feet. And I remember one time, and I have a bad habit sometimes of doing this. My wife gets on to me, but when I'm thirsty, I'll go to the refrigerator and I'll open the refrigerator door and I reach in and I grab the milk and I pop the lid of the milk and how many men can relate to that? Say amen. Yeah. Most of you are lying. You know, yeah. <laughs> my wife would say, stop doing that. Stop doing that. That's disgusting. You're going to teach the kids a bad habit. Well, sure enough, one day, I don't know which daughter it was. I looked at them. They opened the refrigerator. I said, no, I couldn't say anything. And why? Because they were mimicking my bad behavior. Well, listen, we mimic Jesus Christ. Jesus obviously is worthy of mimicking. So a disciple is someone who is denying self. A disciple imitates the Lord. Also, a disciple loves Jesus above everything else and everyone else. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, he saw masses of people following him. Jesus, by the way, wasn't enamored with the crowds. I read a book one time by a church growth guru. He said how Jesus drew a crowd, but he never followed up in his chapter of the book by saying how Jesus thinned the crowd because Jesus had a knack of thinning the crowds. He wasn't interested in the superficiality of people following him. And Jesus said this when large crowds were following him in Luke 14, he said, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, he must hate his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, yet even his own life, or he cannot be my disciple. And then later on in the chapter, he says, if you're not willing to give up everything, you can't be my disciple. Wow, that's a hard saying. And so what Jesus is saying is there, we have to love him above everyone else and everything else. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that we don't love other people. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things that God has given us. But here's the bottom line. When it comes down to loyalty, when it comes down to my affections, when it comes down to defining the supreme object of my affection, is it Jesus Christ? And you know what? In this culture, sometimes we don't have to make that difficult choice. But if you go to the Middle East, there are people there that either have to choose Jesus Christ 
or they succumb to their family and they remain in the Islamic faith. Because people there will tell you, if you convert to Christianity, you will either be ostracized or you will be killed for your faith. And so they got to make a decision. Who do they love more? Do they love security? Do they love their family? Or do they love Jesus Christ to the point where they're willing to die for him? And then finally, in the silo acrostic, I would say the characteristic of a disciple is he is obedient. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you keep my word, if you obey my word, then you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen, if you want to be set free at salvation, and you want to be set free from bondages in your life, the key is obedience. You see, that's one of the hallmarks of a disciple is they live a lifestyle of obedience. Now, I'm not talking about the perfection of your life. I'm talking about the direction of your life because the perfection of our life we'll never achieve until we get to heaven. But the direction of our life should be one of obedience. And there's a lot of people that say they love Jesus. In fact, we sang that beautiful song, Oh, Jesus, how I love you. But Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my what? my commandments. Not perfectly, but as a lifestyle. I remember in, when I was in college, I came home to South Florida to Miami to see my parents. It was during the summer, and I had recommitted my life to the Lord. And I was a, a fire plug at the time. I wanted to share my faith. And I remember going to a place called Norman Brothers. They were known for their milkshakes. It was a produce place, and they had some great strawberry milkshakes. So I went in there, and as I went in, I had this feeling that I was going to run into somebody I knew. You ever have that feeling? You run into somebody at the grocery store? Well, sure enough, I ran into one of my buddies that I played football with in high school. We used to party together. We used to get into trouble together. Well, he went off to Baylor University. He went to college, and I went to another college, so we lost touch. Well, I ran into him. And after we got done with the pleasantries, I said to this particular gentleman, I said, he was a friend, I said, let me ask you a question. If you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? And here's what he said to me. He said, I know I would go to heaven because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I said, but let me ask you a question. Are you obeying the Lord? It's one thing to accept Jesus as your Savior. It's another thing to make him Lord because if Jesus is the Lord of your life, there's going to be a pattern of obedience, and you see, if a person says, I'm saved, but they're not interested in obeying the Lord, you have to question whether they're saved. Because 1 John 2 says that if we claim to know Him, but we're not interested in obedience, we're a liar and we do not practice the truth. Now again, this is not to say that if you stumble and fall, we all do. But if a person says, I know Jesus as my Savior, but they're not interested in going to church, they don't read the Word, they're living in immorality and they're living like the world, you have to question the validity of their salvation. You're saved by faith alone. Good works don't save you, but listen, good works and obedience demonstrate that your faith is genuine. So when Jesus says make disciples, he says don't make fans, don't make timeshare Christians. He says make disciples. What's a disciple? Is a follower of Christ, someone who learns from Christ through his word, because Jesus isn't here physically to teach us, but we learn through his word and through his spirit, and as he teaches us, we obey. And if you're a disciple, you're going to live in self-denial. Not perfectly, but you're going to deny self to follow him. You're also going to imitate Christ. You're also going to love Christ above everything and everyone else. And finally, you're going to live in a lifestyle of obedience. So when Jesus here says make disciples, what he's doing is he's giving here the commission of the church. This is our mission. Here is what we're to be doing. Now, I don't know about you, but I never was a good student in high school. You guys know that who's who's list? You ever heard of who's who? It's all the people that are smart. I never made the who's who's list. I made the who's he list. <laughs> and one of the things that I hated was English grammar. But I do know this, a verb speaks of action. Whenever you read a sentence, the verb is the main action in the sentence. Well, the verb here in the Greek is make disciples. That's the main action of the church. Yes, we're to feed the poor. Yes, we're to have programs. Yes, we're to help children. Yes, we're to do all these things. But ultimately, if all of those things are not producing disciples, that's the main action of the sentence. Make disciples. That's the verb. Now, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell us here how to make disciples. 
Years ago, I was at a seminar, and this pastor got up, and he gave an impassioned speech to his church about how we need to reach out to the community. He showed this video clip, and everyone got excited, but I thought to myself, all right, what's the next step? How do we get that done? And he never had a next step, and you know what happened? It never materialized. Because you can have a lot of cheerleading going on, you can have a lot of rah-rah, but if you don't put feet to your amens, what happens is nothing gets done. So Jesus here gives us three ways that we can make disciples. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us three participles. Now, again, I don't like grammar, but you know what participles do? Participles modify the main verb. If the main verb is make disciples, participles show us how to do that. And by the way, participles always end in ing. And so he gives three participles here to make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are the three ways. Let's look at the first one. We are to go. We are to go. And here he's talking about evangelism. He says, and here's what the Greek literally says, as you are going, make disciples. What does he mean by going? He's talking about evangelism. Now, are you ready for this? You know what the Greek word for go is? Go. I don't care if it's in Hebrew, if it's in Aramaic, the Greek word is go. In other words, get her done. Just do it. We need to spread the word of God like manure out into the community. I had a professor, he says the church and its message is like manure. He says if you pile it up, it stinks. But he says if you spread it out into the world, it enriches the world. And he was right. And you know, if we're not careful, and this is true of me as well, because I can fall into these ruts, we can develop a mentality where our mindset is come and see rather than go and tell. Jesus said that we are to make, we're to be fishers of men. He said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And I'm afraid rather than the church being fishers of men, we are keepers of aquariums. We're not interested in fishing for men. And you see, we're to go out on the world. It's not a come and see mentality. It is a go and tell. And he says, as you are going, it is lifestyle. Sometimes it's outreach events, and we're going to do a lot of those here, and we go to outreach events, but it's also as a lifestyle. I remember years ago when I was here, I believe I was going to seminary at the time, I was at the Barnes and Noble in Irmo, and I got out of my car, and you've experienced this before at a grocery store or somewhere else where somebody gets out of their car, and it's so timed in a way that you kind of just meet up together. In fact, sometimes you'll delay to let the other person go first because you don't want to talk to strangers. Well, this guy, kind of at the same time we came together, talk about a divine appointment, this guy saw my hat, I had a University of Miami hat on, and he said, hey, are you a Miami fan? I said, yes. I said, are you? He said, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. I said, well, I grew up in South Florida. And so we began to talk, and I found out we had a lot of things in common. And I thought, well, God has dropped this pagan in my lap, I got to do something with this. And so as we were sitting there talking, I said to him, I said, hey, you know, let me ask you a question. I said, if you died tonight, where do you think he'd spend eternity? He looked at me and he goes, hmm, he goes, that's a good question. I've never thought about that before. I said, suppose you stood before God and he said, why should I let you in? What would you tell him? And I don't remember his exact answer, but it probably was something to the degree of I'm a good person because I get that a lot when I share my faith. People say, well, you know, I've been good. I've done this and I've done this. And by the way, I always use the 10 commandments, not to beat people over the head, but the purpose of the law is to expose sin. It's like a mirror. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, aren't you? He probably said, yeah. I said, one of the commandments is thou shalt not lie. Have you ever lied? Oh, yeah, I've lied before. I said, so have I. I said, one of the commandments is thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? I get 50-50 on that one when I share with people. He may have said, yeah, I've stolen before. I said, one of the commandments is not to commit adultery, but I said, Jesus said, if you look to lust, you've committed the act in your heart. Usually when I say that one to men, all the men go, guilty as charged. I said, well, let me, let me tell you this. I said, the Bible says on the day of judgment that the guilty will not go unpunished. I said, if God was to judge you on whether or not you kept his commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? He said, guilty. And I said, the Bible says the guilty will not go unpunished. However, here's the good news. God offers you eternal life. But here's the point I'm making, people. It's as you are going. Sometimes God puts us in unique situations where we get to share our faith. I was reading about an airliner back in the 90s. It was Ethiopian Airlines. They were going to a particular location and hijackers hijacked the plane. 
And when they hijacked it, they took it over, they didn't know what they were doing, and they ran out of gas, and they crashed into the Indian Ocean near the Comoro Islands. There were people on the beach there that actually filmed it. You could get on YouTube, and you could see the plane actually coming down and hitting the water and the wing coming off. Most of the world saw the video clips on this. But what most people didn't know, that in the plane as it was going down, there was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Meekins. Andrew Meekins, I'm not sure if he was a pastor or not, but as everyone is freaking out, knowing that they're probably going to meet their creator, he stands up in the middle of the plane. Here it is, as you are going, he stands up in the middle of the plane, and he shares the message of Jesus Christ with everyone, and he says, look, we may meet our maker right now. You better know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Twenty people repented of their sins and got saved on that plane. He ended up dying in the crash. It was a stewardess who got... who. Um, who survived, and she was the one who told the story. You see, as you are going, God puts us in a lot of different places. He places us in situations where we're able to share our faith, but we got to be ready because 1 Peter chapter 3 says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Now, sometimes when we go, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, he said to the 70 when he sent them out, he says, go. And then he says, I send you out as sheep among what? Wolves. We live in a hostile culture. We are in a post-Christian, post-modern culture. People don't believe in the Bible like they used to 50, 100 years ago. Today, when you share your faith, a number of people will say, well, I don't even believe in a God. I don't believe in the Bible. And sometimes people get very hostile when we go. When I was in New Jersey, one of the outreaches we would do during the wintertime is we would go to a local university, Rowan University, because it was too cold to go out to South Street in Philadelphia. So we'd go to this student center and uh, we'd break up into teams. And we got a lot of agnostic, a lot of Catholics, a lot of atheists, and then we get people that have an amalgamation of all kinds of beliefs. So we'd walk up to them in a non-threatening way and we'd say, hey, we're from Trinity Christian Chapel and uh, we want to pray for you. How can we pray for you? And that would disarm people. Well, this one particular gentleman I walked up to, I took a different approach. I said, hey, look, we're here and we're from a church and we're doing a religious survey. And we want to find out people's opinions about what they believe. We want total honesty. I said, are you an atheist, agnostic, uh, Christian, Catholic, Satanist? I didn't know. So he started to talk with me. And he said, well, I struggle with belief in God. And so as he's telling me this, I'm trying to marshal some arguments for the existence of God. I'm doing it in a gracious way. Well, I notice he's starting to get visibly angry. And then finally, he yells out real loud. He says, listen, dude. He says, you came here to ask me what I believed, and now you're trying to convince me your way. He goes, let me ask you a question. Where was your God when I saw that guy burned alive in a car? Where was your God? He was a paramedic. Now, what would you say to that? This guy was visibly angry. And then he stepped back, and then he started screaming at me, expletive, expletive, expletive you could hear crickets in the student center. Everybody was looking like this, and I kind of pulled back like this, and I was like, dude. And that was, that was one of the few times that I've experienced that kind of hostility. And so I went on my way, and he stood at a distance, and he watched us. And the whole time I'm sharing with other people, I'm going like this, looking over my shoulder, because I didn't know what this guy was going to do. Sometimes when we go, as we are going, we have great conversations with people. We're able to give them the gospel, And you know what? We're not responsible to save people. That's God's job. We're responsible to plant the seed. That's our job, to be faithful. And that's what we're called to do. But there are times where we go out and sometimes people are hostile. They don't want to hear the gospel. And Jesus said, my daughter and I were reading the Bible the other day, and she didn't know what it meant. Don't cast your pearl before swines. I said, look, don't take something so valuable, people that are hostile that don't want it. He says, don't cast your pearl before swine because they're not going to receive it. And so we're to make disciples, and that means we're to go. Jesus says, as you are going. Now, here's the question. Where are we going to go here at Calvary Chapel? If you'll notice the screen up here, you'll notice these concentric circles. Jesus gave us the model in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When he sent the Holy Spirit, he says, I want you to be my witnesses. Now, remember, the disciples were thinking Jesus was going to restore the kingdom at this point. And Jesus says, look, it's none of your business, guys. That's for my Father to determine. He says, but you're going to get power at Pentecost, and I want you to be my witnesses in these four concentric circles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We don't do these progressively. We do them simultaneously. 
Jerusalem represents our immediate community here. And then Judea, we go beyond. And then we reach into other states of the U.S. And then we reach into the uttermost parts of the world. This is not defined just geographically. It's, de- it's designed culturally and it's designed in terms of ethnicity. We're to reach people different than us, different languages, and we're to move out. You say, well, how are we going to do this? Well, let me show you our area right here. This is Lexington, about 22,000 people. This right here is our fishing pond. The Bible says we are fishermen, right? We all have fishing rods, spiritually speaking. We use different lures. And this is our fishing pond that we are called to reach here at Calvary Chapel. Other churches are called to reach this fishing pond as well that are in this area. But I got to be responsible for the stewardship God has given me in this area. And by the way, we want to reach out three to five mile radius. We'll go on beyond that. But we want to give as many people as possible in this area an opportunity to hear the message and either accept or reject Jesus Christ. And by the way, you should have been given a list of outreaches that we're going to do. If you didn't get the handout, there may be more left, but there's a list of outreaches that we're going to do. Those are the ones we're going to go to. By the way, speaking of fishermen, I remember if you'll notice this slide here, next slide, uh, I put this, I was on a missions trip in Memphis and I put this hook in my hat and it represents fishing for men. And so I was at a diner in New Jersey and as I'm eating, the waiter says to me, hey, what's that hook on your hat? And I looked at him and see, it's a great conversation starter. I said to him, I fish for men. And then I went, oops. (laughs) I said, please take that back. I said, I'm happily married. I said, let me qualify, sir. I fish for people to know Jesus Christ. And he said, oh, and then I began to launch into a conversation with him about the gospel. So go back to the previous slide, Noah. We're only fishermen in this pond. But the Bible also says, John read this a couple weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 3, we're farmers. Say it with me. We are farmers. There you go. You see, God has given you a bag of seeds, hadn't he? And what God wants you to do is he wants you to broadcast the seeds to other people. And listen, the more seeds you broadcast in the field of the world, the more potential for converts. We don't save, but our responsibility is to broadcast the seed. And so we're to go. That's why we're offering Class 101. It's going to be coming up in February. We want to equip you to share your faith. We're going to be doing a lot of outreach events, and we're going to, we're going to have different outreaches. So if God is leading you to head up a different outreach, and I don't mean street evangelism. Listen carefully. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. By the way, sometimes when I'm drifting in my thoughts, one time I was drifting, I wasn't listening to my daughter, and my daughter used that on me. She said, Dad, are you listening? Say amen. And I went, amen. She's trying to get my attention. Listen carefully. Not everyone is called to street evangelism. I get that. So don't feel like if you don't do street evangelism, something's wrong. Absolutely not. Not everyone's called to stranger evangelism. But listen, you can head up outreaches. You can be a part of outreaches. And that's what we're called to do. I printed off some ABC cards. Here's what I'd like you to do is take them. And you know what? Buy somebody's coffee in the drive-thru behind you. When you go into a convenience store, pay for their coffee and give them a card. We had a girl in our church do that in New Jersey. The lady was so taken back when she paid for her meal in the drive-thru, the lady followed her for about two miles. And when she finally pulled over, she said, what church do you go to? I cannot believe that you did this. Listen, most people don't get anything for free, but listen, it's a great segue because the gospel is free. And so this is what we're called to do. Now, what message do we share real quickly? You'll notice the P's up on the screen. I like to use these. I remember when I was in college, somebody gave me these and they have stuck with me. It's a simple way to present the gospel to someone as we go. And that's the way we make disciples. We got to first go. First of all, there's the problem. Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. The penalty is death and hell. Romans 6.23. Then there's God's provision. Jesus Christ, he died and rose from the dead to take the penalty for your sin. And then finally, there's God's plan, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is sort of a modification of the Romans road. These are the four Ps. Now, when you talk to somebody, don't go up to them and say, I'd like to share with you the four Ps. Number one, you got a problem, dude. People are going to look at you and go, this is a weirdo. Listen, You need to internalize these so that you know the gospel involves sin, hell, 
Jesus Christ dying and rising, and you repent and trust in Christ to be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel message, but this helps explain it. We have ABC cards in the back. We produced them for you to help you. But that's the message that we're going to be trained on how to share. So, Jesus said we're to make disciples. That's the main verb. That's the action. That's the mission of every church. How do we do that? First participle is we must go as you are going. Second participle is we must baptize. He says in verse 18 that you and I are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's not enough just to see people come to Jesus Christ. We must baptize them. We must immerse them in water. I heard about a preacher who was uh, doing a baptism service in some body of water, and this guy was real drunk, and he ended up stumbling into the baptism service, and he got next to the preacher, and the preacher could see that he was visibly drunk, and he smelled like alcohol. And so he said to the drunk man, sir, do you want to find Jesus? The man said, yeah, I'd like to find Jesus. So he took him and he put him under the water. He came up and he says, so did you find Jesus? The man said, no. So the preacher again dunked him under the water, held him down a little bit longer. Then he pulled him up and he said, sir, have you found Jesus? The man said, no, I haven't found Jesus. Well, then the preacher, visibly irritated, took him and he put him on even longer and the guy was failing. Finally, he pulled him up and he says, have you found Jesus yet, sir? And the man says, I don't know where he fell in. I don't know where he's at. (laughs) Now, that's not what it means to baptize. Baptism, by the way, doesn't save you. Baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. And by the way, the word baptize, the word baptizo means to immerse or dip. That's why we don't believe baptism is by sprinkling. Now, if you've been baptized by sprinkling, it's not going to send you to hell. But we believe in immersion because the word baptizo means to dip. And by the way, in the early church, when a person was converted, they were immediately baptized. We see this in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. As soon as he came to Christ, he said, what's there to keep me from being baptized? In the American context, people often don't get baptized till later. And by the way, if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to do so, not to get saved, but it is the first step in your obedience. Now, what does Jesus say? What's the purpose of baptism? Why do we baptize people? Why did Jesus include this in the Great Commission? Well, I like to use the acrostic pick. When I would baptize people at my other church, I would always explain it this way, pick. P stands for what? Purity. You see, when a person's baptized, it doesn't purify them, but it is a symbol of the purity that they've experienced in Christ because they're washed in the water of the Word. And so, when a person's baptized, it represents purity. And then secondly, and I think here's the big thing, is identification in the pick acrostic. Identification means that we die with Christ, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and baptism is a picture of that. Now, if you look at the screen here, here's a visual to help you see this. You'll notice at the top, you see that person crucified with Christ. When you accepted Jesus, the Bible says that the old you was crucified with Christ. Whatever happened to Christ happened to you because you were made one with Christ. So whatever happened to Christ happened to you. When Christ died at the top left, you died. The old you died. When Christ was buried, the old you was buried. When Christ arose from the dead, the Bible says you arose to newness of life. Now, here's what baptism does. Baptism pictures that spiritual reality at the top. When you're in the water and you make a public declaration of your faith that you accepted Jesus Christ, that's as if you are being crucified with Christ. When the preacher takes you and dumps you in the water, he immerses you, he baptizes you, that represents you being buried with Christ. And then when you come up out of the water, that's a visual picture of you being raised with Jesus Christ. And so baptism doesn't save you, it's simply a visible expression of an inward reality. And he says we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't say names. He says names, singular. Why? Because he's talking about the Trinity here. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. They're all one in essence, but they are distinct in person. And there are groups out there today that say you should only baptize in Jesus' name only. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There are some Pentecostals that teach that. That's actually error. 
They get it from the book of Acts because the book of Acts says that they baptized them in Jesus' name. And so they're called Jesus' name only group. And they say, when you baptize, we had a girl in our church, she said, I'm not going to be baptized if you're going to use the Trinitarian formula. I said, why? She says, it says in Acts, you'll only be baptized in Jesus' name. I said, no. It says, baptize them in the name, singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. By the way, I use that on the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. When I'm debating them, I show them that the Trinity is taught in the Bible. And so baptism is important. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to take that step of obedience. It's not for salvation, but it's to picture your identification with Christ. So baptism represents purity. It represents identification. And finally, baptism represents commitment. Because in the early church, when a person was baptized, they were making a public declaration of their commitment to follow Jesus Christ. You were basically breaking off from the world, and you were saying publicly, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, a lot of people get baptized, and I've done a lot of baptisms in my ministry, and a lot of people will leave, and you'll never see them again. In the early church, it was a serious deal because when you were baptized publicly, you were basically saying, I'm a follower of Christ, and you could die for your faith. When Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, that word witness is the Greek word martyrion. You know what the word we get there is? Martyr. Because you could be a martyr for Jesus Christ in the early church. And so how do we make disciples? That's the mission of Calvary Chapel of Lexington. First, we got to go, as you are going, lifestyle. Secondly, once they come to Christ, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thirdly and finally, for this morning, if we're going to make disciples, we must teach them. And this is the teaching in the participle there. Not only are we to go, not only are we to baptize, but we're to teach. Notice, if you will, verse 20, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. There it is. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. You see, Jesus says it's not enough just to make a convert. It's not enough just to get a decision. And by the way, some ministries, that's all they want is a decision. That's all they want is somebody to raise their hand. Yeah, I see that you accepted Christ. It reminds me of the pastor that uh, was pastoring a small church in an area. It was a beach area, and the church was too small, couldn't support him, so he had to supplement his income. And he was a lifeguard in order to supplement his income. Well, ever since he'd become a lifeguard, the supervisor of the beach noticed that there had been more drownings since the preacher had taken over. And so he went to investigate it, and as he was going out to the beach to talk to the preacher, he noticed somebody in the water in the beach drowning. And they were struggling like this, and they were raising their hands, and this guy's thinking, why isn't the preacher going out there and saying or trying to rescue this guy, only to realize that when the guy was doing like this, the preacher stood up in his uh, booth there, and he looked at the man, and he said, yes, I see that hand. (laughs) Some of you are getting that now. A lot of people want decisions. They want to see the hand, but they don't want to teach people the Word of God. And you see, our responsibility, once a person comes to Jesus Christ, is we are to disciple them. We are to move them from the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word. We're to help them to become spiritual young men, spiritual fathers and mothers. If you read 1 John chapter 2, John talks about three stages of spiritual growth in chapter 2. He says, I write to you children. That's the first stage of spiritual growth. Then he says, I write to you young men, and we would add young women. And then he says, I write to you fathers and mothers. You see, fathers and mothers have reproduced themselves. That's inherent within the word father and mother. And so when we lead a person to Christ, we baptize them. The goal is to inculcate the truth in their life. And by the way, that's more than just teaching. It's encouraging them. Sometimes it's rebuking them when they stray. But the goal is to bring them from being a spiritual child to a spiritual young man or young woman to a spiritual father or mother. The church today has too many Gerber Christians. The church today has too many spiritual thumbsuckers. Many of them have not matured in their spiritual walk with God. And you see, God wants to move you from being a Gerber Christian to an Outback State Christian. He wants to move you from being an infant in Christ to a spiritual adult in Christ. And really, you know what the goal of discipleship is? Is M&M. We want to produce maturity and multiplication. We want to help that person mature. And Ephesians 4 defines what maturity is. It's becoming like Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal of spiritual maturity. It's not just head knowledge. 
You can go to church your whole life, get a lot of head knowledge, know the Bible inside and out, and really not be mature in your faith. Maturity happens when you take truth and you apply it to your life. You see, information plus application equals transformation. Information plus application equals transformation. And that's what God is after. When we get taught in discipleship, He wants us to mature, to become like Christ. But furthermore, He wants us to multiply. You see, we need to reproduce the process. Once I become a disciple, once I grow, once I mature, you know what God wants me to do? He wants me to replicate and reproduce that process. He wants me to help others grow. You see, one of the marks of maturity is I'm not only feeding myself, but I'm helping others grow in their walk with God. Now, I realize that a lot of people are not going to want to get into a formal class where they teach, and that's fine. But listen, you could always have one person that you're influencing. Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says, I've given you milk, and he says, that's good, that's fine. But then he says this, by now, you ought to be teachers. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he was chiding the Corinthians. He says, I gave you milk. You were not ready for solid food. But then he gives them this indictment. He says, you're still not ready. You're still not maturing. You're still a pablum Christian. And so Jesus says here, the goal is to help bring people to maturity and then to help them multiply. In my church in New Jersey, there was a lady that was coming, and she asked to speak to me after one of the services. So we sat down, and she kind of poured out her heart to me about some of her personal struggles. And I said, well, ma'am, uh, are you married? Is your husband coming with you? And she said, no, he doesn't come with me. And she said, I don't think he's a believer. She's like, he's come to the service a couple times. He really likes you, Pastor Mike. He resonates with your teaching. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, let me reach out to him, and I'll have wings with him because I have a heart to reach people for Christ. So I called him up and I said, hey, Steve, you want to get some wings? He was like, yeah, let's get some wings. So we went out, we had some wings, and we talked. And guess what? A couple months later, he came to Christ, not because of me. You know what happened? He was going to get his oil changed at one of those Jiffy Lube places. And the guy that owned the Jiffy Lube place had tracks on the counter. And he picked up one of the tracks and he began to read it and God convicted him, he accepted Christ, and man, did he have a glorious transformation. And here's what happened to Steve. Steve began to feed on the Word of God. He began to drink the milk of the Word, and then he began to eat the meat of the Word, and he began to hunger, and I watched him grow because I began to invest my life in discipling him, and I watched him grow. He was learning the doctrines of the Bible. He was feasting. He was developing the disciplines. And you know what? He began to reproduce himself. He began to grab other people, and he began to influence them on the phone, in groups. Now, I know not everybody's going to grow to that same extent and maybe at that fast of a rate, but here's the issue, people. Are we multiplying? God doesn't want us to just come to church and sit, soak, and sour. He wants us to hear the Word of God, and He wants us to reproduce it. And so let me ask you a question. And by the way, here's how we're going to do it. If you look it up on here, here's some of the ways we teach people to grow. Next slide. Uh, no, the picture one. There you go. See, we have Sunday and Wednesday service. That's a way that you can get the Word of God into you. I want to encourage you, if you're not coming out on Wednesday night, come on out. It's a way to grow. Also, classes. We're going to be offering a lot of classes, small groups. We're going to be multiplying more small groups. And then, of course, one-on-one -on -one discipleship. These are the ways that you can be taught the Word of God so that you can reproduce. So let me ask you a question this morning as we close. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the mission of the church. Are you making disciples? Are you going? All of us need work. All of us are in process, but we all need to go. We all need to reach our community. And so how has God spoken to you this morning? We're going to engage in a lot of different outreaches in the church, I want to encourage you. How can God use you to be a part? Listen, no one is insignificant in this fellowship. Everyone here has something to offer. Everyone has gifts. And so our mission is to make disciples. Let me close with this story. And I think this underscores the fact that we need to be out there making disciples. This is a real letter written by a girl whose parents had died. She wrote this letter to the pastor of a church. Here's what it says. Dear Pastor, last Sunday I attended your church and I heard you preach. In your sermon, you said that all men have sinned and rebelled against God. 
Because of their rebellion and disobedience, they all face eternal damnation and separation from God. But then, pastor, you also said that God loved men and sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to redeem men from their sins and that all those who believe in him would have heaven and spend eternity with God. And then she said this, pastor, my parents recently died in rapid succession. I know they did not believe in Jesus Christ, whom you call the Savior of the world. If what you preach is true, pastor, they are damned. And then she said this, this is the kicker. You compel me to believe that either the message is true or that you yourself don't believe this message or that you don't care. She said, we live only three blocks away from your church and no one ever came to tell us, you hypocrites. That's the mission of the church. We forget that people are lost and going into a crisis eternity. And listen, we cannot be a country club with the cross. Yes, we're going to have fellowship, and fellowship is sweet. Yeah, we're going to have our groups and our get-together. Yeah, we're going to be taught the Word of God, and all of that is good stuff. But in the end, if it's not translating us getting out into the world and making disciples, we're not fulfilling the mission for which God put this church here. And I know that's John's heart. I know that's my heart, and I know that's your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And Lord, for the challenge of making disciples, Lord God, I know I fall short of this, and I know everyone here would admit that they do as well, Father. We are an imperfect people, but God, you've given us the power, and you even promised that you would be with us to fulfill this mission till the end of the age. And so, Father, we claim your presence, we claim your power, and Lord, as the church branches out and as we do your will in the world... You said, lo, I am with you always. You will be with us. You will empower us. And you will strengthen us. Father, I pray that much fruit would continue to come out of this fellowship. I pray that as we go into the community, that, Father, you would open doors. And as we engage in the various outreaches that we're going to do, I just pray that, Father, you would raise up the workers and raise up the laborers here. You said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Father, we pray now that you would raise up the laborers here and not just in our church, but in all the churches in this area that name your name, that are preaching the word. Raise up the laborers, Lord God, to go into the harvest field because, Lord, we know that's your heart. Jesus, you even said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost and then disciple those who are found. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe God has spoken to your heart. Maybe you're not where you need to be spiritually. The Bible says that if you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, I'm not where I need to be spiritually. I'm kind of going through the motions or I'm just a Sunday Christian only. Would you ask the Lord to forgive you this morning? The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Ask the Lord to cleanse you and fill you with his spirit. And maybe there's someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus. Ask God to use you to speak to them. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.